Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Hello to you. It's been a minute. World Soccer Talk Radio back here with you live all across America here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Listen in podcast form, iTunes, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and of course the website worldsoccertalk.com. My name is still Nate Aparea. No, I have not changed it to anything crazy just yet. It is so nice to talk to you. It has been, it's been a little while and I'm way down south right now down here in San Diego. That's right. No more rugged Northern California days for me. I'm sure I'll get back up there eventually, but for the time being down here in San Diego, which is German for send that answer at Nate WST on Twitter again at Nate WST and get all of us at world soccer talk. We're going to be joined in this edition of the show by one of the most respected football journalists in all the land, uh, man, I'm very excited to have on the program today, Tim Vickery. You know him from the BBC's World Football Phone-In and all of you fans of Brazil. Well, I think you know Tim Vickery quite well. He's lived in Brazil since 1994 and he specializes in his coverage of Brazilian soccer he is originally from London, and he is a Tottenham fan. So we'll we'll talk with him about how he keeps in touch with his beloved Spurs and what's going through his mind here this season as Tottenham are chasing a Premier League title. But we're going to talk actually a whole lot more about the Brazilian national team, this huge summer ahead for Brazil with the Copa America Centenario and, of course, the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. And the question on everybody's mind is, Where's Neymar going to be? We'll get Tim Vickery's take on that question. Where in the world will Neymar be? Will he be in the U.S.? Will he be in Rio de Janeiro this summer? Or will he be in both? We shall see. Tim Vickery with us on the other side of this break. World Soccer Talk Radio, live from San Diego. Stay tuned.
You're listening to World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nada Barea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Welcome back in to World Soccer Talk Radio here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Our guest in this edition of the show talking to us live from Rio de Janeiro. You know him from the BBC's World Football Phone-In. You've known his Brazilian-focused soccer journalism for over 20 years. Tim Vickery, thank you so much for coming on, sir. My pleasure. Let's kick, let's kick the ball around for a few minutes. Let's do it. And, and you know, I've I got to throw this out to the listeners. You know, I, I've been in the far north of Northern California for so many, so many of these shows. And it's been me in, in Shasta talking to a guest in, in Aberdeen or a guest in Manchester, which is such a, a rugged combination. I'm liking this combination right now. It's me in San Diego and you in Rio de Janeiro. That is a fine combo, Tim. We've got the world, well, we've got the Americas covered. It's a big place, isn't it? It's a, it's a very big place, which uh, will be an impediment to this kind of union, not a formal union, but an informal union of CONCACAF and Comnibol. More club, perhaps more international competitions between clubs for, and national teams from, from our two regions. But it's a long, long way and a lot of traveling involved. My goodness. Well, we've got the good beaches covered uh, right now with SD and, and Rio de Janeiro. But we've got to talk about that big summer ahead that you speak of and, and the Copa America Centenario taking place, of course, here in the U.S., as well as the Olympic Games in Rio. And I want to talk with you mainly about the Centenario, but I have to ask you the question that's on so many people's minds right now, both in Brazil and around the world, for that matter, from Spain all the way back to, to the U.S., and that is, where the hell is Neymar going to be this summer? Is he going to play in both of these tournaments, or is he only going to play in one? And if so, which one is he going to play in, Tim? Right. This, this will go down to the wire with negotiations, and he would probably like himself. He'd like, like to play in both. Um, Barcelona would be absolutely crazy to allow him to do that. Remember, with Neymar 2011, he played the Copa America, 2012, the London Olympics, 2013, the Confederations Cup, 2014, the World Cup last year, Copa America. It's a lot of strain to, uh, to put on, uh, on, on a young player. Um, so I think the chances of Barcelona allowing him to play in both uh, are very, very small indeed. Now, there is no obligation whatsoever on Barcelona to release Neymar for the Olympic Games. But that's the one that Brazil would rather have him for. For Brazil, that's their priority. The Olympic gold medal is the only thing, uh, the only title available to them that they've never won. On home ground, they'd really like to put that right. So Brazil will negotiate with Barcelona, and I'd imagine that the outcome will be that Barcelona let him play the Olympics in return for missing out on the Copa America. How much does public relations tie into this, Tim, in terms of the face of Neymar with Brazil hosting the Olympic Games and Neymar very much being the face of the Brazilian Olympics in, in 2016? How much does that play into this? I think it, it plays in quite a fair bit because um, this, this will be the first time that the Olympics have come to South America. And the Olympic tradition is not particularly strong here. It's, 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 a, it's a, a continent, and certainly Brazil is a country, where football absolutely dominates, and all the other sports survive, really, on, on kind of crumbs off football's table. So uh, Neymar will be the poster boy for the Olympics, much, much more than any athlete of, of track and field. 
So that, that clearly is, I think, a factor. in. Uh, but it, it's up to Barcelona because, in theory, Barcelona are obliged to release him for the Copa America but are not obliged to release him for the Olympics. So that's the way that it works out in theory. In practice, I feel it, it could probably well be the, the, the other way around. All right. Now, I have to ask you about the anticipation of this Copa America Centenario down in Brazil and and all around South America, for that matter, because obviously soccer fans here in the U.S. are are just jonesing for this thing already. Some of the best players in the world are going to be playing this tournament here in the U.S., but it's such a funny thing as this tournament was clouded by corruption controversy for so long and we we were wondering if it was actually going to happen now it's going to happen it's going to go through and we're all excited for it but how are people in south america feeling about this special edition 100th anniversary copa america is it really that important to fans in brazil and the rest of south america well it varies a little bit from from country to country i think brazil is probably where enthusiasm is 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 lowest perhaps colombia um, where enthusiasm is highest. You know, Colombia has a, has a big US-based population and the Colombians love following, traveling to, to follow their national team. It is, from the point of view of the South Americans, it is an inconvenience, this, this tournament, in the calendar. Now, the Copa America, after years of, of decades, really, of disuse, it was brought back in 1987 uh, and uh, taken all around the 10 countries in South America where we're currently on our second circuit. Um, Initially, it was played every two years. When South America began its marathon format of World Cup qualification, all 10 countries playing each other home and away, that started in 1996. That relegated the Copa America very, very much to a a, a secondary position. And the Coppas of 1997, 99, 2001, and 2004 saw lots of understrength experimental sides because the priority was world cup qualification um the current position that the uh, the the, the copper held now every four years that the conventional copper holds is one of kicking off the new cycle of competitive games the year after the world cup is a year of friendlies it's a kind of silly season then we have the cop america and straight afterwards we have world cup qualification the problem that this copper has is it comes in the middle of world cup qualification we've got the next two rounds coming up at the end of march the end of this month and then we've got two rounds in september two rounds in october two rounds in november that is the priority not the Copa America. So uh, bear in mind that all 10 countries were in action last year for the, for the Copa in Chile. Six were in action the year before for the World Cup in Brazil. So you, there is a real risk of countries burning out their players if they bring all of their best players to this Copa America. They would prefer to have them up and running for World Cup qualification. So that's the problem that this Copa faces. Um, there are a couple of other problems. One is a lack of preparation time. And another, and there's some grumbling going on about this in South America, the amount of traveling that the teams will have to do inside the United States. And the worst example is, is Uruguay. On Uruguay kickoff in, in Los Angeles, their, their second game right on the other side of, of your country in Philadelphia. And then they, they have to travel all the way back to San Francisco. If they come second in their group, which is, is uh, highly probable i would have thought they then travel all the way back to boston so there's the idea why are we going to burn out our best players to do this 
So it'll vary from country to country. Uh, the big hope, I think, for the competition is that Argentina will come as close to full strength as possible because they haven't won a senior title um, since 1993. They've won the Olympics a couple of times recently, which means that the Olympics this year for Argentina are not so important. But for Argentina, I think they will take this pretty seriously. But uh, around the continent, I think there'll be plenty of other teams who will, who will bring young experimental sides. Well, that transitions perfectly into something else that I wanted to ask you, and, and that is how you feel about the way this tournament is being promoted, and, and specifically in regards to the stars and, and the face of Messi being all over every single advertisement for this thing here in America, the, the face of Neymar even being on all of these advertisements, the, the face of... Of, of Luis Suarez even being used and, and these huge, huge stars from these South American countries being used as, as selling points for this tournament here in America. How do you feel about that? And do you think this could be possibly a, a recipe for a little pie in the face as far as some of these stars, maybe once June comes around, not actually playing in this tournament, Tim? It, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, I would imagine that lots of players, the European-based players, will come under pressure from their clubs not to play this tournament. Um, to uh, you know, if, if if there's any little uh, surgery they have to do or whatever, use June and July to do it, and the, the clubs will will put pressure on. So that there is uh, a, a clear chance of of that advertising um, being being an own goal because uh, you know rule number one of advertising in the long term is don't make promises for your product that it can't deliver. Um, so there, there is, there is a, a possible problem with that. But we can flip that round a little bit because let us imagine that some of these great stars aren't able to come to the tournament. That doesn't make it necessarily uh, uninteresting. And there are still lots of promising names to have a look at. And one, for example, a 19-year-old from Colombia, Marlos Moreno, uh, played his second game in the Copa Libertadores, South American Champions League, last night and was once again sensational. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Colombia um, had a few training sessions with a young group of domestically-based players. It, it's possible that their coach, Jose Peckerman, um, was thinking of that. He hasn't said so explicitly, although he has said that it's going to be difficult for Colombia to bring all of their full-strength uh, squad. It's possible that uh, Peckerman was having a look at these home-based players, including Marlos Moreno, with a view to bringing them to the, the, the Copa Centenario, in which case the US audience will get a sneak preview of uh, a few names like Marlos Moreno, who in, in a couple of years' time could be household names all over the world. So um, there is always an interest, even if, as it turns out, we might not get all of the big names. Well, it will be USA Colombia to open up the Copa America Centenario Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara on June the 3rd. Cannot wait for that. We'll continue this conversation with Tim Vickery here on World Soccer Talk Radio on the other side of this break. It's the Sports Byline Broadcast Network. Stay tuned.
Welcome back into World Soccer Talk Radio, Sports Byline Broadcasting Network, iTunes, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, WorldSoccerTalk.com, all of that good stuff. My name is Nate Abaurea. Tweet me at NateWST and get all of us at World Soccer Talk on Twitter. Tim Vickery still with us here in this edition of the show, talking about the big summer ahead in Brazilian soccer and in American soccer, both North and South, with both the Copa America Centenario coming up as well as the Olympic Games. I want to go back to the Brazilian national team, Tim, and I have to ask you about how the manager is feeling about this summer. We've talked about some of the players and some of those players' clubs, how they're feeling about this this gauntlet of a summer that is 2016. How's Dunga feeling uh, about everything with, with Brazil having to play in both of these competitions this summer? Well, originally, he wasn't going to coach the Olympics. Um, originally, Brazil had a, had a youth specialist coach who was going to take charge of the Olympics, and he was only going to do the, uh, the, the Copa America. That changed, um, that changed uh, last year, so he will be doing the Olympics as well. So it's, it's a busy summer for him. Um, Dunga has a, a, a kind of permanent haunted look about him. He's not popular. Um, he, he, he doesn't attempt to be, to be popular. Uh, he's not popular with the press. And that means he's kind of haggard, always looking over his shoulder, always in the knowledge that bad results um, could lead him to, to lose his job, which is one reason that uh, even if he can't get Neymar, he will be trying to bring as strong a squad as possible to the Copa Centenario. Um, because uh, this has happened before with, uh, say, Confederations Cups. You know, Brazil have gone to the tournaments uh, on the understanding that it wasn't going to be taken particularly seriously, not done very well, and the coach has lost his job as a result. Um, coaching Brazil is always a little bit like sitting in a coconut shy. You're always going to get things thrown at you. Um, when, uh, when the team does well, it's the players who get the credit. When the team does badly, it's the coach who gets the blame. So I think that's probably one thing in favor of the Copa Centenario. Um, Dunga will always consider that his job is on the line. So he'll try and take it as seriously as possible and bring as strong a, a squad as possible, even if that might not include Neymar. Now, Dunga took over the Brazilian national team in the wake of one of the biggest embarrassments in, in the history of the Brazilian national team. And that, that famous day in July of 2014 at Belo Horizonte, the 7-1 loss to Germany that every Brazilian fan wishes they could just erase from their memory. But how much does that still stick around the Brazilian national team landscape from the millions of, of devoted fans to even players themselves and members of, of coaching staffs and just the Brazilian footballing culture. How much does that day, honestly, Tim, as someone who's down there, how much does that day still linger all the way here into 2016, almost two years on? It's a, it's a big stain on the carpet and it's not going to come out anytime soon. I mean, uh, and Thiago Silva, who, um, the, the centre-back and, and captain of the side who didn't actually play that game, he was suspended. Um, from that game, and I think his absence was a contributory factor in the, in the way that the, the defence uh, absolutely collapsed in that first half. And he, he's uh, been suffering from depression since. And he was suffering from sleepless nights beforehand. The emotional strain on him before the tournament was really taking its toll. And that's one thing I think you certainly saw during the competition. It was just too much for, for Brazil. 
Um, they were crying before the game, crying during the game, crying after the game, you know, and uh, it was a Herc. Every game became a kind of Herculean struggle. And in the end, I think that the, the team suffered, uh, suffered an emotional collapse. Um, the only good thing that you can say from it is that they're unlikely to be playing a World Cup at home for the next few decades. So uh, at least that kind of pressure that, uh, under which the team buckled um, will, will not be seen again because it was clearly too much for them. Um, the, the appointment of Dunga really was a, a, a declaration that there's, there's, there's nothing fundamentally wrong. That's what they were trying to say. You know, we're still five times world champions. We've just had an accident. Uh, I worry that that was a very short-sighted vision. I think in recent years, Brazilian football, and it still produces wonderful individual talents, Neymar is the best example. And if he can't play the, cop, the, 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 the Copa Centenario, what an opportunity for others to step up to the plate. What an opportunity for, say, Douglas Costa, having a great season with Bayern Munich. William, who, who's, who's done pretty well for them, um, the, the, the man from, from Chelsea. But those great players, they tend to be all in, the, in, in that same position. Those, uh, th- those slippery strikers attacking from wide areas. And centre forward remains a, a, a problem position and uh, what is especially a problem position in Brazilian football is centre midfield. You have to go back some time to find a truly great all-round Brazilian central midfielder. Where is the Brazilian Xavi, the Brazilian Iniesta, the Brazilian Schweinsteiger, the Brazilian uh, Xabi Alonso, the Brazilian Tony Cruz? They don't have anyone performing that all-round function in the centre of midfield. Uh, and in that aspect, I think Brazilian football has been looking sadly dated of late. Well, when you talk about that short-sightedness and, and the hiring of, of Dunga and, and the way it went down and, and the way that my, my favourite Gene Hackman lookalike of all time, Luis Felipe <laughs> Scolari, left the uh, Brazilian national team in, in pretty much disgrace and when, when you also tie in the third-place match uh, against Holland in that World Cup, you talk about the short-sightedness. How much... Has that really hindered? I think what I'm trying to get at here is when teams get knocked out of a tournament in that fashion, we've seen it with so many other countries over the years where it's time to really look at the system. It's time to really look deep at at development. And it sounds like from what you're saying and from what other very respected journalists and former players and former coaches have said, that's not really happening in Brazil. And is it is it a stubbornness? Is is it a, a something that, that comes from a pompous part of the, of the mind? Or, or is there just a, a strange refusal to to adapt to, to, to modern change? I mean, what is it? This is, this is, a, this is a million dollar question here, obviously. I think it's your last option, mostly, um, a kind of living in denial. Uh, football and, and the, the, the wins of Brazilian football are hugely important to, to Brazilian nationalism. Uh, and uh, there's, 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 a, there's a reluctance to, to deal with reality, I think. That, and football is a, is a dynamic process. And a few years ago now, and Brazil, Brazilian football and the Brazilian national team, they, they became obsessed with the physical development of the European game. Uh, and uh, they came to certain conclusions. They came to the conclusion that it was no longer possible to play a possession-based game. And uh, you needed your central midfielders to be big, strong physical specimens, specimens, one meter 80, that kind of thing. Along came the Guardiola, of, of the, the Barcelona of Guardiola, and, and ripped all of that up, um, you know, with Xavi and Iniesta and with a team full of, of, of little guys playing a possession-based game. Brazil had thought that this was impossible, that this couldn't be done. 
Now, no one told Guardiola's Barcelona that. No one told them that it couldn't be done. So they went out and did it on a weekly basis. And with a tweak here and a tweak there, they've, they've been doing it ever since. Brazilian football still hasn't properly adjusted to that change. And Brazilian football is, is, uh, is not really geared up to compete globally. Um, part of this is, is the perils of success. Um, success is, is invariably the result of a process. Um, usually, and this is very common in, in so many walks of life, once you become successful, you forget about the process and you think that it's a, it was a kind of a natural birthright. Um, Brazilian football is run domestically in, in, a, in, a, in a shambolic fa- uh, fashion. Uh, and uh, there is a huge kind of area, area of, of denial that they don't need to learn from anyone else because that they've won the World Cup five times. But excuse me, that, that, that was yesterday. We've moved on since then. Uh, and uh, there are serious problems. I, I think even worse than the, 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 two, the, the 2014 World Cup, which has a huge emotional aspect to Brazil's failure, um, have been the stories of Brazil's failure to win continental trophies, to win the Copa Libertadores recently. And Brazilian football in June, enjoys a huge financial advantage over its South American rivals. It pays far higher salaries, uh, and you'd expect to see that on the pitch when a club from Brazil meets a club from Argentina, Colombia, Chile, Paraguay, and so on. But in in recent years, Brazil's record in the Copa Libertadores has been very poor. And I think that's an even more damning indictment of of where Brazilian football is at the moment than what happened in, in 2014. There are signs of change, but it's happening slowly. It's a little bit like trying to trying to turn around an oil tanker. I think it's going to take time. Well, I want to get into those serious problems facing Brazilian club soccer on the other side of this next break. We'll definitely do that here with Tim Vickery on World Soccer Talk Radio, Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Stick around. Welcome back to the show, World Soccer Talk Radio, Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Nate Abaurea and Tim Vickery here with you in this edition of the show, continuing this conversation all about Brazilian soccer. And, and let's focus now on what we ended on there, and that is the state of Brazilian club soccer. And Brazilian club soccer very much through the 90s, seemingly surviving the, the mass European exodus that, that we saw in the 90s with the best Brazilian players going going to play in Europe when the money transitioned so much to these these big European leagues and and all of these great Brazilian players going and plying their trade in Europe. It seemed that the Brazilian league continued to produce and, and develop the same top talent year after year. Has that at all dried up in, in recent years, Tim? And, and if so, why? And, and what other problems can you kind of pinpoint as, as things that have hindered the, the advancement of the Brazilian league itself? Yeah, I came over 1994, which was a lucky time, I think, because between 94 and 99, they beat hyperinflation and they had a strong currency. Uh, and that that helped them um, keep the players. It helped them bring back the great Romario, for example, when he came back from from Barcelona at the start of 1995. Um, currency has has been weaker since, um, but there are there are serious serious structural problems. Um, the, the Brazilian calendar is totally out of sync with the rest of the world. I know that's a problem that you have in the in the United States as well. Um, but uh, in Brazil, between January and the middle of May. 
Um, the state championships are played. Now, that's one championship for each of the 27 states that make up this giant country. Now, these, in, in a country this size, these championships have great historical importance, but absolutely no contemporary relevance. And what they do effectively is they put huge clubs. I'll give you the example of, of Flamengo, of, of Rio, the, the, the most popular club in the country. They've got, they can count their supporters in the tens of millions. But between January and mid-May, they're playing on a league basis tiny clubs who could hold a convention of, of, of their supporters in a, in a telephone booth. For, for months, they're doing this. Now, think about, think about what that does. That means that you, you are, if you are Flamengo, you are operating massively below your, your financial potential for those months. It means that no top-level player wants to bother playing the, these, these, these silly little games. He'd rather be in Europe playing in the Champions League. It means that your calendar cannot stop. So the, the, the domestic calendar won't stop either for the Copa America, the, the, the Copa Centenario, or for the Olympics. So for the domestic clubs who are giving up players for the national team, these competitions are an absolute disaster. You know, it means that you're losing so many of your, your best players, you're, you're paying them good money, but you can't have them all through June or all through August because they're on national team duty. So, uh, and, 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 the, and the numbers are really worrying. And, and the business-minded people here in Brazil are beginning to become very concerned about the rise of football in Major League Soccer. Not just China, um, with all the money that China is spending, but the rise of Major League Soccer. Um, Amir Somoji, who's perhaps the, the leading specialist in, in football finance, and he published an article earlier this week saying, you know, it's not going to take very long before our clubs, our Brazilian clubs, have been overtaken in financial terms by MLS and have been overtaken in terms of uh, international importance. So these are real warning signs flashing. And we just saw a few, a few days ago, Bahia, just being promoted to the first division in Brazil, a side of great history, a former Brazilian champion, went up to Orlando City to play a friendly. They lost by the margin of six goals to one. Now that's a real wake-up call if ever there was one. But is the current system capable of changing? Is the current system capable of reforming itself? There are some hopeful signs that the clubs might be in the very early stages of starting to get organized because the ideal situation, Brazil has long, has long passed its 1992 moment. I use 1992 as the year when the Premier League were formed, was formed in England. Um, what you had there, 92 professional clubs and a structure that held back the biggest clubs. So they broke away and, and started their own league, retaining promotion and relegation with the other leagues. And it's a structure that, that has worked very well. For all of its flaws and excesses, it's a structure which has been a huge success. Brazil has long passed its 1992 moment when the big clubs need to break away from a structure that doesn't serve in their interests. Um, it's very difficult, though, for, for Brazilian clubs to unite. It's a far bigger problem for them than it is for the English clubs because the English clubs were set up as businesses. Brazil's clubs aren't. They're set up as, as, uh, as social clubs, uh, and uh, it makes it much, much harder for them to share a common agenda and get together. It's only starting to happen. A lot more needs to be done because, as it stands, Brazilian football is operating ludicrously short of its potential. Okay, Tim, there were so many interesting points within what you just touched on right there. I want to go back to one of them, and that is this 
sound, it, it sounds like almost a bit of, a, of an obsession with Major League Soccer here in the U.S. as far as how the league has grown and how American soccer uh, has developed around the league in recent years. Could you expand on that a little bit more as far as the Brazilian view of Major League Soccer and why you feel like some, some powerful Brazilian soccer heads are, are actually focusing so much of their attention on Major League Soccer here in America? It's only been on their radar screen comparatively recently. And I, I used to annoy them. On, I do Brazilian TV every week. And I used to annoy them by a few years ago now by pointing out that average crowds in MLS were higher than average crowds in the Brazilian first division. Uh, it, it took a while for that, for that, that, that thought to, uh, to, to, to seep in. But in, in the last uh, few years, they've, they've seen the rise of, of the MLS. Unfortunately, the people who are concerned about this are not the people in positions of power. They're, uh, they're, they're kind of independent pundits and, and, and so on. But th that, that comes across under the, the, the full line from Amir Samoyji. Um, that uh, the, the business specialist that, that I just told you about, he said, he, he said that because of the Americans' efficiency and our own incompetence, they will soon overtake us. So this is yet another warning shot, just like the 7-1 was a warning shot, just like the recent um, problems at Brazilian clubs in the Copa Libertadores is a warning shot. This is yet another warning shot that Brazilian football is falling badly behind. Now, Tim, going back to something else that, that you touched on as far as these tiny little games against teams with, you know, fan groups that, that, that could fit in a phone booth where, you know, Flamengo or, or various other teams have fans in, in the millions and they've got to play against these, these minnows and how much that deters top talent from wanting to be part of these teams. Could we ever consider heading to a Brazilian Super League where, where say, Corinthians and, and Sao Paulo and, and Flamengo and, and a few other teams of that ilk joined in a 10-team Brazilian Super League? I mean, has something like that been talked about? Uh, it hasn't been talked about enough. It needs to be talked about more. We are slowly moving towards that kind of situation. There are problems. I mentioned the problems of the, of the clubs uniting. Um, the big clubs in Sao Paulo, that's Corinthians, Sao Paulo, Palmeiras, and Santos. Sao Paulo is by far the richest state in Brazil. So the smaller teams in Sao Paulo are comparatively rich. And that state championship is relatively lucrative. Of, of all of the state championships, that, that's, that's by far, it's far and away the best one. Uh, and the big clubs in Sao Paulo, they're quite happy with this, that, that situation. So for the moment, they don't want to break away. So that's a problem. Um, we've got other clubs perhaps looking to break away, but the big clubs in Sao Paulo, they, they seem quite happy with, with the situation at the moment. It's going to be very hard for the clubs to get together in the way that the English clubs got together in 1992. And that was a long, drawn-out process. That, that took years and years and years. It's going to be much harder in Brazil. We are seeing the first steps down that road, but it's going to be a long, winding, rocky road before we get to uh, the idea of, of a of a super, a super League. You could easily have an 18-team Super League in Brazil. It would be a big success. It just needs the courage and the conviction of the clubs to get together and do it. 
Now, some people might be listening to this and think that, that we're crazy for bringing this stuff up, but this has been legitimately talked about even by UEFA. I mean, they, in recent years, the idea of the, the UEFA Super League and, and doing away with domestic competition, obviously it would take so many years for it to truly be implemented. But I have to just ask you now, Tim, on, on, on an opinion level and on a, a personal soccer values level, when, when we talk about stuff like this and these, these big money Super Leagues being formed potentially, whether in in Brazil or even looking back at at the major league soccer structure, which is very much designed in 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 compare, comparative to to the NFL uh, uh, here in America, whether it's the the UEFA Super League that was considered for a while. Do you have any issue with, with doing away with with things like promotion, relegation, and and what makes soccer brilliant on on so many levels in terms of everyone having an equal opportunity, or is it a situation where it's so necessary, unique to Brazil right now, where something like this is necessary, and and the big money super league, quote unquote, could actually be a, a savior of of Brazilian soccer? How do you feel about all that? I, I do have issues in general with uh, doing away with promotion and relegation. I think that that's short-termism, uh, and uh, it, it's for me it's counterproductive because it, it renders so many so many games irrelevant. I think that in general terms, football always walks an uneasy tightrope between culture and business. Uh, and uh, in recent years, perhaps there's there's a danger of business going going too far. The alarming thing at the moment, referring specifically to the Brazilian situation, is the state of affairs. It certainly doesn't suit the interests of the big clubs, but it also doesn't suit the interests of the small clubs. Most clubs in Brazil, most professional clubs in Brazil are inactive for most of the year. Um, they, they have a, a calendar of maybe three or four months and then they shut down for the rest of the year. So this is a state of affairs which makes it very hard for smaller clubs to build a support base. And how can you build a support base if you're only playing competitive matches for three or four months a year? The whole system needs to, needs to be, needs to be uh, overhauled. I think there's a need for a kind of super league, but there's also a need for a structure that keeps the little clubs in action and, and gives the little clubs the opportunity to play the big clubs on a cup knockout basis. Because on a cup knockout basis, that's where you can have the surprises. That's where you can have the opportunity for the giant kill. So I'm all in favour of meetings of that kind on a cup basis. And when I say on a cup basis, I don't mean home and away. I mean, a one-off game like the FA Cup in England, where the luck of the draw makes a, it plays a huge part. And if you have a league system, the league system rewards the best team, the most consistent team over the course of the season. A good counterweight to that is a cup competition where you're giving opportunities to everyone. And what you want to keep a cup competition alive is upsets. And in order to have upsets, have it one game only and let luck be a contributing factor in the results. Uh, so applicable to our American situation, all you fans of the U.S. Open Cup as well as Major League Soccer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We'll leave all that for another show. We'll get into that in a few days. I got to close out here with you, Tim, by, by stepping away from Brazil for a moment and heading back to your homeland just outside of London where you grew up. And you actually grew up as a Tottenham supporter. So Tottenham in a big chance right now to, to chase a potential Premier League title. It, it is definitely mind-blowing in so many ways, but I have to ask you, your favorite Tottenham moment in your lifetime? 
Um, a few. And the biggest one for me was the FA Cup semi-final in 1991. It was the first FA Cup semi-final, I think, to be played at Wembley, or one of the first ones to be, to be uh, semi-final to be played at Wembley. It was Tottenham against Arsenal. So it was a, the, the big North London derby. Um, the year that Arsenal were the better team, they won the league title that year. So they were going for the league and cup double. Uh, and uh, it was a fabulous afternoon at, at Wembley where we, we, we beat them 3-1. And it was one of the great performances of Paul Gascoigne um, shortly before he suffered the injury that didn't end his career, but did have an impact on his career. So that, that, was, a, that was a wonderful, wonderful moment. If I have to pick up, pick up any moments from uh, all my years of suffering, and in 50 years, I've never seen this. I've never seen us go, you know, Tottenham go into their home straight with a real chance of, of winning the title. So uh, we have to stay more with, with, our, with our, our history of winning cups. And that, that semi-final in 1991 is, is a golden moment for me. Oh, Gaza. Oh, Gaza. Anytime we can bring Gaza to the fold here on World Soccer Talk Radio, I am all for it. Be sure to look that one up, by the way, all of you fans of Wembley nostalgia, 91 FA Cup semifinal, Tottenham and Arsenal. Tim Vickery, I, I understand that back in 2014, during the summer, during the World Cup in 2014, your Twitter following doubled. It went from like 35,000 to 70,000 during the World Cup. I think it's just continued continuing to grow so how can folks listening to this show get a hold of you in the twitter sphere tim vickery it's at tim underscore vickery um and almost everything that i write gets on there one way or another um not most of the yeah some of the stuff a world soccer magazine gets on there as well but usually you have to buy the magazine for that which is a a splendid trade for a few dollars. Um, so that, that's, um, that's where you find me. Um, you'll find some stuff in, in English, mostly in English. You'll find a little bit in Portuguese as well. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome back on the show anytime, mate. My pleasure. Thank you. Again, that was Tim Vickery. We're back after this to take the express train home right here on World Soccer Talk Radio Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Another big thank you to Tim Vickery. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Tim underscore Vickery. That is V-I-C-K-E-R-Y. How about you now, San Diego? Enjoying my days out here in Claremont. I'll be heading out to Ocean Beach a little bit later this evening, as well as saying hi to some friends out in Point Loma. Do a little PB boardwalk bike ride tomorrow. I am having a grand old time down here in San Diego. Come on down and visit. We'd love to have you. A whole lot of interesting local soccer buzz developing down here in San Diego. I would love for you to come down and check it out. My name is Nate Abarea. Get at me on Twitter at NateWST. Signing off. Bye for now. World Soccer Talk Radio. Love you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.